Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Uh, it's great to be in partnership with you and with churches like you around this region of our state. Uh, and just some simple things to, to keep in mind today and, and just the desire I have for you is to, nothing but to encourage you. Uh, there are ways in which uh, what you're doing can seem uh, afar. There's things, ways in which you can, what you're doing can seem like, what's, what's the connection to me personally? What's the point? I really think there's something about what we'd like to do today in terms of looking at this, this group of brothers and sisters in the early church, and there's something they did that we can all do, and there's something they did that is terrifying for you and me. Uh, what can we learn from the church of Antioch? And I just want you to think about this right here. Hold your hand in front of you and just open it. Just, if you can think about that. Why, why is that so revolutionary? Because that might be one of the most terrifying things you've ever done. It, I would believe in, in a sustained way, it's one of the most significant things we ever, ever do anywhere. Open our hands to God, open what, our hands with what we possess to somebody else. It, but that, that act right there of opening your hand and releasing is exactly what this church in Antioch does that is so revolutionary for the early church, and I think it just reverberates through the corridors of time. That is what I really wanna help you look at this morning, and it's that simple, okay? Don't confuse simple with easy. It's that simple. It, don't confuse simple with easy. Go, go love today, that's simple. That's not easy. Fix your, fix your eyes on Jesus. That's simple. That's not easy. There are a hundred things that God calls us to that are simple, that are not easy. Open your hand. That is simple. That is not easy, okay? So we would like to walk you through. I don't know if you have an outline in front of you. I don't know what your practice is at Trinity, where I come from. We always have one printed, or if you're watching online, it's available through our app. So just to get you ready for what we're going to talk about, the first big idea is we're going to talk about how God equips his people. Because the thing that you're going to see first and what they do is you're going to see a, a, a record of God already having established people in this church and congregation, and we'll see first what God does to equip them. After that, and second, second and third big ideas in a few minutes we'll get to is we're going to look at what's, what's wrong with this picture because we can be the objects of God's generous care, but then we live in unbelief and fear. But lastly, what happens if the church really does give generously? That's the three steps I'll give you. So this first step, but what does it mean for God to equip his people? And why does that matter? I want you to think about in this simple image. Sometimes you can, you can lose sight of what is the point of this? What is this meeting? What is this thing you've come to? What are the man hours that are dedicated into this uh, event? What are the man hours and, and the uh, resources that have been dedicated into the building of this facility? All the equipment, all the technology. 
multiply this times thousands of places all over this state and then all over this country, tens of thousands of places. What's the point? My simplest definition for the church is this. Imagine going to a hospital. You're wheeled through the ER. You're within a hair's breadth of the end of your life. One thing is clear, you want care. If you were wheeled through the emergency room doors as a patient, what kind of care do you want to receive? Effective care. Sensitive, compassionate care. Now imagine if every single person in that hospital, every person there, every doctor, every nurse, every technician, every administrator, every person taking out the, the, all the toxic waste, every person preparing food, every single person there had one time been a patient wheeled through those ER doors. What kind of hospital would that be? They would be in touch with the kind of care that needs to be provided because they remembered what it was like to crave that care. That's a church. Whether you're not a Christian, you're trying to figure out what the faith of the Christian faith is about, or if you've known Jesus for 70 years, it doesn't matter. The story is still basically the same. If you are in, you once were a patient. And honestly, the longer you're in, you realize you never quit being one. What is the point of all this? There are people around us that are in eternal peril. There are people all around us that are in, they're facing doom. They need care. Who are we? We are people who once were there then the more we lose touch with that, probably the more we lose touch with the whole point. God equips his people and he equips them with his personal resources and generosity and vision. I mean, the triad, we always want to try to help people learn everywhere throughout the, all the ages of the Christian faith and locally now in this generation. The triad of God's power, God's goodness, and God's wisdom. What is God always doing? All of those things. He's always perfectly in control. He's always loving, and he's always wise. And with that, all of that resourcing, what is God doing with people like you and me? He's equipping you. Faithful is he who calls you. He will bring it to pass. First, First Thessalonians chapter 5. As we understand what it means to be so prepared. And these men were gifted by God. We see that as in the passage that they were, there were there in the church in Antioch. Prophets, teachers, they give us some names. Barnabas, Lucius, Simeon, Menaean. Members that, that were connected to royalty and Saul. Now, if you, you're new to the Bible or you're new to reading these stories, some things you need to understand. From other passages in the scripture, so for example, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see this promise that God has ordered out that there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There's varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each... To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What's the image of the church? 
We are like a hospital where every single one of us has been a patient. We are a team providing care because we knew that we needed care. But notice that, to each one. And then what are the particular stories of these people that we know up to this point in the book of Acts? Barnabas has been the guy that has taken the hot, radioactive Saul. If you're unfamiliar with the story, Saul was a Christian killer. He was a guy who was so committed to the ways of the Judaistic faith and the Pharisee party that he was convinced there was no way Jesus was it. And he was convinced that anybody following Jesus was really part of the problem. And he had obtained permission to chase these people. And he was in the business of chasing them all over the place. And he's it by his own commission. Confession, he will admit that he had arranged the deaths of many Christians. Then Jesus confronts him. The resurrected Lord of glory confronts Paul, Saul, who will become Paul. And as he confronts him, Saul's life is completely transformed. And they say, as he's now in Damascus and he's been transformed by the saving grace of Jesus, he was somebody who brought through the ER doors. Now he's one who wants to offer care. And he's out there compellingly preaching the very Jesus he had once opposed. But all the, the people that were in the church knew was it freaked them out. The one that was trying to kill us is now talking about Jesus. And they don't know what to do with him. And Barnabas says, I'll take him. What kind of man is Barnabas? His nickname is Son of Encouragement. We know that when the the radical giving takes place at the end of Acts chapter 4, and if you remember, if you are familiar with the Bible and you read it a lot, in Acts chapter 5 is where you get that, that really dramatic story of Ananias and Sapphira who lie. And they're struck dead. And, and they lie about giving half of their property away. The guy that had just given all of his property away was Barnabas. So what, what can we know from the reading of the scriptures up to this point? What do we know about the players in the story? There's a variety of gifts. There's a variety of stories. There's the wise, older courageous, generous guy that will take the scary guy and he'll turn the scary guy into somebody that is so powerfully effective in ministry, he'll write half the New Testament and he'll plant most of the churches. So what can you say about Barnabas? Rookie, veteran. Like unbelievable veteran. What can you say about the prophets and teachers? inexperienced and insignificant or gifted? Gifted. What do we know about Saul? No help or profoundly gifted as a leader and significant? Just want you to catch, catch, those are going to be important parts of the story. What has God been doing? He has been equipping his people. Guess what he's doing here at Covenant? He's equipping his people. To each one of you, to each one of you has been given gifts. I love it that you see it in 1 Corinthians 12, you see it in Ephesians chapter 4. To each one of you, grace or gifts have been given. If you are in the body of Christ at all, you know that you have received care and now you have a role to offer care. But there's something. There are no small people is what Francis Schaeffer said. 
There are no, there's nobody sitting on the sidelines in a church. Everybody's doing something. Now, it's honest. It's honest to say, I don't know what my part is. It doesn't mean you don't have a gift. It's honest to say, I don't know what to do. It doesn't mean you don't have a gift. It doesn't mean you don't have a contribution. So as you recognize right now in terms of why does it matter, catch the important part of the central theme of this whole church, the capital C church, the church universal of Jesus. What's at the heart of the message? Is it a message declaring what we can do? Trick question. Not that. Is it a message declaring what he has done and can do? Now, I just want you to catch something. What is a consistent pattern of the kind of messengers God has picked? What is a, kind, what is a consistent pattern for the kind of messengers that God has picked? Our world thinks, are you successful? Are you sharp? Are you educated? Are you talented? It scares me sometimes that even Presbyterians, we are the most massively overeducated people in the game. And then in there, a lot of times people can still look upon us and think, you know, you're not quite educated enough. I'm not against education. I am absolutely against confidence in talent. Why? Because of the biblical pattern and because of the heart of the message. The message is not a declaration of anything we have done. The heart of the message is a declaration of what God has done and what God can do. So if you are so incredibly talented and you get out there talking about it, what is quick, what's a quick conclusion people in the world, remember we're trying to give care and people that are maybe being rolled through the ER doors, what is maybe a, a misconception they can start to form is that their hope depends on you. That their hope is now built upon your capacities and your talents. But if we start with Moses, let's make it plain. Moses was a cop killer. Hmm, that's an awkward fact in your resume. Remember, an Egyptian official is arresting, he is stopping, he is beating a Hebrew servant, and what does Moses do? Moses kills the Egyptian official. Once it becomes known, Moses the fugitive flees for his life. Can God do anything with that guy? How about King David? King David is a friend killer. King David sleeps with his friend's wife and then arranges for his friend to get killed in battle, but it's an arrangement, so it's a murder. Can God do anything with that guy? Talk about something really hard on your resume and terrible for your relationships. There's places in this world, in this country, where having cop killer on your resume might actually get you some points. But nowhere will it be on your, uh, on, uh, helpful for your resume that you kill your friends. How is this possible that God can pick these kinds of guys to be his messengers? And then there's Saul. Saul's a mass killer. Moses kills one cop. David kills his one friend. Saul kills all kinds of Christians. He's a serial killer. 
How is that possibly congruent with a Christian message? Because the message is not ever about what you or I can do. The message, in other words, it's almost like Jesus, can you see Jesus thinking in his wisdom and his power and his love? Finally, a guy I can work with. Saul will have nothing to boast about except me. He is that guy that's coming through the ER doors that nobody thinks there's any hope for this guy. I mean, it's like they're already, already, it's almost as if the EMTs are already coding him at the door saying, he's gone. He's so far, he's gone. And then the doctors bring him back. And that's Jesus' work with Saul. So do you understand now, if you think of yourself as a Christian, here's the first corrective I want you to think about if you think of yourself as a Christian. How much have you subtly slipped into the idea of the belief in it's about talent, it's about expertise, it's about competence, it's about doing it right. And that's really what means, that's when we know God will work. So if you think of yourself as a Christian, there's your first place of repentance because you've forgotten the story that it's not about any of our successes. The story is a glorious story of the kind of God who can save people like us. And if the message isn't about what we do or can do, the message is about what he can do, then isn't that interesting? Subtly, we forget the message and church ceases to be a place of care for people who are desperately broken and helpless and wrecks. And we think subtly and actually form it subtly that the church is a place for people who are nice getting nicer. Have you ever thought that you could be nice and seeking to be nicer and you could actually be getting further and further away from Jesus and grace? And you're getting way less effective in evangelism because you're basically telling a lie. You're telling people the goal of life is to be nice and get nicer when the goal of life is to get reconciled to the holy God that you and I have defied and that deserves to kill us. And the only message we have to declare is he's a God of mercy and he's made a provision whereby criminals like you and me can be pardoned and people who are wrecks like you and me can be redeemed. And that's worth something worth talking about. But the program is not about niceness getting nicer. The program is about redemption for people who deserve to be condemned. People who are within the threads second of dying and expiring on the table. And then there's this provision, there's this place where they can get life-changing, life-saving care. And everybody who's caring for them was once wheeled through those doors. That's the first big idea. Why does it matter that God equips us? So the second big idea is this. Well, then what could possibly be wrong with this picture? That we have this great provision. We have God in his power and his wisdom and his love generously equipping us for his mission. And then we respond. I mean, can you do the scratch the record sound right now? I mean, can you do it in your head and your, your mind's ear where you have this idea of look at this amazing promise of God and this provision of God and all of his power, and all of his wisdom and all this saving love. And he can do this kind of work with people like Moses or David or Saul or you and me. And he can do this kind of work. And then our response is to balk and our response is to stop and our response is to immediately question and hesitate because somehow we think, uh, I'm not sure I can trust you. 
We don't respond with confidence. We don't respond with gratitude. We respond with fear. We don't respond eagerly to say, how, do, how, can it, how is it possible for even me to get in on this care offering system and instead to think uh, it will never work? Look at what they did. One of the things they were doing was they were living already in faith. Verse 2, when this call comes, they're worshiping. They're worshiping the Lord and fasting in verse 2. So rather than living in the current of worshiping, let me just remind you, this is when I talk to unchurched non-Christians and we get into the discussion of well, what, what really do you think the, the concept of sin is? The simplest answer is one word, selfishness. That's sin. The graphic picture you need to understand is it's blasphemy and treason. When I share the gospel, I start this way. God is holy. He's incomparable. When you look at the word holy, it's almost an unintelligible word in our culture anymore. It's never good. I mean, I bet this week, if you are out there somewhere in the workplace, you were out there at school, you were out there somewhere with your friends, you were on the sports and the basketball court or the tennis court, and you heard the word holy, it preceded something else. And it wasn't good. If someone calls you, they find out that you go to church a lot and they call you a holy roller, that's not good. If they th- somebody refers to you as maybe they interact with Jerry or Jonathan or some other church staff and they think, well, you're holier than thou. That means you, you're pious and you look down on people who are not as good as you. That's not good. Here's the problem. In the biblical language of the words that got used, you don't really have a Hebrew word for the word very. So when you wanted to emphasize something, you repeat the word. So think about this, how many times are there doublets all over the Old Testament? Have you ever read the Psalms and thought this is kind of redundant? That's because it was a Hebrew technique to say it twice was to say it with emphasis. When God calls Moses, what does he say? Moses, Moses. It was not because Moses was deaf, it was like God was shouting. When David grieves, he says, Absalom, Absalom. Why does he, because he's, he's emphasizing his grief. When you see doublets, they're all over the Old Testament. So, what does it say to you when you have a word, one word, in the whole Bible used in triplicate? Do you think that's a big word? The only word in the whole Bible, Old Testament, Isaiah 6, New Testament, the book of Revelation, both times seeing God enthroned, the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, Revelation, What are the angels saying? Holy, holy, holy. Their voices, they're not little fairies flying around, kind of like with chirpy little voices. They are, the word seraphim comes from the word for flame. They're warriors of flame and their voices shake the building. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. What does the word holy mean? In a doublet. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says, I am the holy one. To whom will you compare me? He repeats it. I am the holy one of Israel. To whom will you liken me? Implied answer, nobody. He is incomparable. There's no one uncreated. There's no one infinite like him. There's only one owner. There is only one designer. There's only one self-existent God. 
He's incomparable. And then what do we do? We absolutely compare him. And we hold him up next to sex, and we think, I'd rather have sex than you. We hold him up next to money, and we think, I'd much rather have money than you. We hold him up to the approval and praise of people, and we think, I'd rather have applause than you. The word holy means irreplaceable. And then what do we try? Can't really do it, but what do we try to do? We absolutely try to replace him. And when you try to replace a king, what do you call that? Treason. Do you know what's wrong with you? Do you know what's wrong with me? We have absolutely tried to replace the only owner and rightful king of the universe. Do you think you have a problem with your weight? Do you think you have a problem with your sex life? Do you think you have a problem with your money? That's nothing. We, all of us, we, if you have a pulse and you're born of Adam, we have all tried to replace the king of the universe. What is wrong with this picture? He has every right to tell me what to do and act like he owes me an explanation. He has rightful claim to everything I have. Every breath I've taken, every talent I have, every asset I own, it's really his. And when I live like it's mine, and I live like it's mine to decide, and I live, what do I do? Every day, my greatest problem is never just a merely circumstantial thing. My greatest battle is me and my instinct to want to be rid of him. And for this condition, I have rendered myself destroyed. What happens when you break a design? And I've rendered myself absolutely guilty. Jesus is put on two trials. Sinclair Ferguson makes a great observation in his book, A Heart for God. And he talks about how with two trials, Jesus is on trial for a blasphemy charge before the Jewish court. And he's on charge for a treason charge before the Roman court. In case you don't know, blasphemy is where you are pushing yourself up big. And treason is where you're trying to put the rightful authorities down. You see, it's a tandem move. And Jesus is there on those two trials, and how does he defend himself at those two trials? Again, another trick question. He doesn't. Why does he not defend himself? Because he's not there as himself. He, He can't commit blasphemy. He is God. He can't commit treason. He is the king of kings. Then why doesn't he defend himself? Because he's there to represent me and you. And what defense is there for those charges? There is none, because we're guilty. So what does Jesus, by his silence at his two trials, imply about what he thinks we've done? Blasphemy and treason. Do you know why ministry doesn't work? Blasphemy and treason. Do you know why marriages don't work? Blasphemy and treason. Do you know why jobs don't work and coworkers can't get along? And you know why families and brothers and sisters and generations fight? Blasphemy and treason. Because I have asserted myself as the most important person in the universe. And if I can take my maker on and try to pull him down, you're no big deal. I can easily pick a fight with you. 
And what is wrong with this picture and what God has designed the way this ministry should work is this should be this, but instead it's clutchy, grabby, cling, keep. What happens in verse three is they are called to set apart talent. Did you catch this? Paul and Barnabas aren't nobodies. I mean, can you, can you imagine how many guys had Saul by this time led to Christ? How many, what kind of evangelist is he now in their church in Antioch? What kind of leader is Saul? I mean, Barnabas. Barnabas is the developer of powerful leaders. So he's a leader of leaders. What kind of talent is that? And then can you imagine what in blasphemy and treason, you know what we do when God says, open that hand and open your hand with your talented people. And what verse three would read like is this is what it would read like. And then after fasting and praying, they decided it was too risky. And so they kept them and never planted a church. That's how verse three would read. It's amazing to think about the things we can do when we're cowardly. Um, The Pharisees are profoundly cowardly. Remember, they, they moved to the profound step of murdering God. They basically murder God in human, in human form. They say all the time, we love God, we love God, but the real God, Jesus, God incarnate, is in front of them and they hate him. That's why Jesus would say to them, quoting in Mark 7, quoting Isaiah, rightly did Isaiah prophesy, you praise me with your lips, but man, your heart is far away. But cowardice is that kind of thing that gets so, we can become so self-protective because when I react in fear and unbelief, what I act like is God is not for me. What I act like is God is, God would never do that. God would never give. God is neither wise nor loving nor powerful. And I shrink into a self-protective little cocoon. I love it that the building we have in, in Lakeland is the former First Baptist facility. So if you like around a lot of communities and cities, First Baptists often kind of get the big property. Have you not noticed that? If you haven't, and you must be really new to church and you haven't lived around long enough yet, we'll tour you and help you see it. Well, in our city, our vision was to be downtown and the first Baptist facility, like 20 other churches in downtown Lakeland that had moved out to the suburbs. And First Baptist was finally cutting loose with downtown and they were selling a property and we're gonna move. Well, every Tuesday morning, we would do this walk in kind of a really at-risk neighborhood right by this facility. And we would walk through with some leaders in ministry and kind of do evangelism and talk and pray. And, and this Episcopal, charismatic Episcopal priest would go with us every Tuesday morning morning. At the end of one of these walks, he's like, hey, let's go pray that God would give this this building into your hands because you're a church plant. Now, we have 200 people. Now, you got to be a little church here to understand the point of this. If you have 200 people, do you get a facility like a First Baptist Church kind of facility? It's kind of like saying to your six-year-old, hey, try on dad's shoes. You know, I think these will be good for you. But Father Al was convinced we should walk and go, and we go walls of Jericho on this building. I remember I told you he's charismatic. So we're walking laps around this building and he's praying that God's gonna give us building and we get out on the main thoroughfare. If you don't know anything about Lakeland, Lakeland literally forms like crosshairs in your rifle scope. There's a north-south artery, that's Florida Avenue, and then there's Main Street. And just two streets above Main Street, the bullseye of Lakeland, there's First Baptist right on Florida Avenue. So we're on Florida Avenue and Florida 
Florida Avenue has the traffic pattern of about, I'm going to estimate 10,000 cars a minute. And at least that's what it feels like. And we're on the Florida Avenue side. And Father Al stops the Walls of Jericho march. And so he goes full-blown charismatic. And he goes like this. Father of heaven, owner of all things. And I'm thinking, dear God, I hope nobody driving by sees me or knows me. I'm like, I'm standing right by Father Al. The curb's right here. And there's 10,000 cars going by. And Father Al was praying. Sovereign owner of the universe. Giver of all good things. Lover of your mission. I remember what he prayed. Because I didn't. He prayed, I pray, Father, would you deliver this building into my brother's hands? In Jesus' name, amen. And I thought, oh God, thank you, we're done. Can we please get off Florida Avenue? And we finish our walk and we go back and life goes on. And two months later, First Baptist sold the building to a business. There, prayer over, awkward moment ended, great. Two years go by. Two years go by and now we've doubled in size and we're no longer 200 people, we're 450 people and the little facility we have in downtown Lakeland can't hold us so we're now in two services. And we begin to interact and try to find out if anybody's got some space around and the business that had bought this building was now in distress. And in distress, they say, they call us. To give you an idea, the, the city block the land is on is worth $2 million dollars. The facility, I asked two different engineers, what would it cost to build this facility? It's 55,000 square feet. The sanctuary seats almost 700 people. What would it cost to build this? One engineer, I don't know, six million? Other engineers, eight. Eight million minimum. $10 million property. They want us to take it over by assuming their mortgage for $1.1 million. I call Father Al. <laughs> Father Al, I need to confess my sin. He did admittedly say, Tim, what have you done? And I'm like, okay, not that kind of sin, but sin nonetheless. And I said, and Al, bigger sins, because we're supposed to be leaders in faith. And I wanted to call you to confess, you prayed, you believed, I did not. But I wanted you to hear that God has answered mercifully and graciously your prayers. And he has delivered a building into our hands. And he honestly had the audacity to say, when did I pray that? <laughs> I'm like, you were, we're walking laps, you're on Florida Avenue, you're like that. He says, oh, I always pray like that. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture? Fear and unbelief, blasphemy and treason. Is there any hope for people like us? Can I rewind to the message? Is the message about anything we do? Or is the message about what he does? Is he a coach of the competent? Is he a savior of sinners? Choose wisely. Is he a coach of the competent? Is he a savior of sinners? One of my best friends said, if he's the savior of sinners, then I'm overqualified. Why does giving generously make sense? We've got to move quickly on this. Why does giving freely, giving generously make sense? Why does this, 
Why does that make sense? Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10? Freely you have received. Therefore, finish it. Freely give. How have you received? Without payment. How have you received? Without earning. How have you received? Because he did that. And if that's the way he has done something to provide the life-saving care that you and I need and believe in that turns us into people who now would offer that same care back to the next person that's being wheeled through the door, then how does, I would say, flip the question, why why would giving generously never make sense? It should always make sense. Something has got to be broken for giving, giving generously to not make sense. Now, this is where I want to commend you. You guys are killing it. You are opening your hands and you're giving financially to support church plans. But don't forget, it's not just people, money. It's you want to get really expensive, take your talented people. We have a rule at Trinity. The first conversation I have with a church planning apprentice is this conversation collapsed. You can have anybody. If you can recruit my wife, you can have her. If you can recruit my best friend, you can have him. Just remember, I'm always recruiting too. I will never go behind you, apprentice of mine. We've done this six times. I will never go behind you as an apprentice and say, okay, who are you trying to recruit? I'm trying to recruit Jerry and Paxson. And I would never go behind you and say, don't go with them. I would never do that. I would just always remind him, I'm always trying to recruit. I'm trying to recruit a non-Christian to become a Christian. I'm trying to recruit a person who's new to the faith to become a member. I'm trying to recruit members to become volunteers and leaders. I'm trying to recruit volunteers and leaders to become officers. I'm always recruiting. But I'm always also doing that. How did God change the known world? Because Antioch opened their hands. Do you understand that all of the book of Acts from Acts 13 is now all of the missionary journeys? So how do you get to Ephesus? And how do you get Colossae? And how do you get Thessalonica? And how do you get Athens? And how do you get Corinth? And how do you get Rome if this church hadn't done that? Do you understand the profound level of the reverberation of that generosity? I mean, not just life-changing, millennia-changing. We're talking about one of the five pillars of the ancient church is Antioch. And after this event, there's no real biblical mention of them. Paul will go back and report. We don't know much about, but in Alexandria, Egypt, so your side of the map, start in Egypt, you got Alexandria, you got Jerusalem, you got Antioch, you got Constantinople and modern day Turkey, and you got Rome. Those five churches will be the pillars of the known Christian world for a thousand years. You know what's ironic? Ephesus, if you read the number of people in the scriptures who go to Ephesus, Timothy, Paul, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, it's a talented who's who, everybody who goes to Ephesus. And after the council of Ephesus in 325, it's like the church just evaporates. You know what we have no record of? We have no record of Ephesus ever doing that. The church of Ephesus receives talent. There's no record of them giving it away. Antioch gives away Barnabas and Paul. And a thousand years later, the church at Antioch is one of the five pillars of the known church. I don't think that's accidental. I'm sure of this. You know what you're doing in church planning? You're being a pillar. Don't quit. But remember why it makes sense. We are the objects of a staggering generosity. Do you know why the Jesus to the rich young ruler made sense? 
Because when he says to him, rich young ruler, well, the one thing you don't have implied is me. Go sell what you have and come follow, come be with, come have me. And then the rich young ruler, he balks. Why does the call to give away everything make sense in Jesus' lips to that man? Because he's the second rich young ruler. Jesus was the first one. What had Jesus let go of to leave heaven, to become human, to come to this earth and do what he did to die and be raised again to atone for our guilt and to repair our wreckage? What had he let go of? Everything. So why does this make sense? Because Jesus did it first. Wheresoever you've done that, praise God. It's not about what we've done, though. It's about what he's done. Everywhere we have the opportunity to do that and open that hand, we should always remember this is an echo. It's a second sound because I heard it first in Jesus toward me. He freely opened his hands for me. Now it makes sense that I would freely open my hands with anything, with everything, with anyone. So you have that moment where you think, this is scary. This scares me because there's people I know and love. I was talking to Joy, where, Joy, where are you? Delightful Joy out in, the, out in the lobby. There she is. And we were just asking, what's it like in church? She said, yeah, she said that you miss people. And I said, absolutely. And so if we miss somebody, but what consoles us if there's somebody we think in a church plant, I've loved every one of my apprentices. They don't work with me anymore. They left. And they took people we'd known and loved and cared about in our church and they've gone to help start new churches. What consoles us? Because we're gonna be around the feet of Jesus together forever. And if in a little interim of time we're not together, can that future hope and certainty comfort us in this little season of separation? Absolutely. Why does it matter that God equips his people? Because in it, all of his authority, all of his wisdom, his power, his goodness, his love, all of that, he is working to prepare each one of us. What goes wrong with this picture? Blasphemy and treason. And we back off and we act like we can't trust him. But why does it make sense? Because when you see the way he gives, and t- did any of us deserve it? No. He has been generous with people like me. He's been generous with people like Moses and David and Saul. He's generous with people like you. Man, now that's something worth sharing with anybody. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we praise you that you are so generous, that Lord Jesus, you are so courageous to come Take up the mission the Father gave you and with joy, with the, for the joy set before you and that blessed Holy Spirit that you would equip Jesus for that first mission and now extended out of that mission, equip every one of us to share in it in our own place and time and way. Thank you for giving gifts to people like us. Now we just ask, Father, help us open our eyes to see the miracle of your generous love toward us and that we would give just as freely as we have received. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.